as early as I can remember, and maybe previous to the other uh, episode I did on in Formula One, but a little bit after that, Dad and I, I could see myself rolling logs up a hill because we just cut a tree down, and something about being down in the woods with your dad and just in the raw and in the rough of life and seeing something that has towered with such beauty uh, brought down and um, I can hear the chainsaw I can hear the dad saying okay son let's get this up the hill we're going to split some wood because we've got to have some wood to burn to stay warm in this winter and dad, dad would often say to me, he says, son, I'm going to split it and you pile it. And uh, I think I kind of got confused with that as I was growing up because I, I just thought, well, that means I'm supposed to pile an aircraft. But I, I think God was speaking, the father was speaking through my dad, saying, no, I have a little bit of different interest for you. And from early childhood, probably, especially, you know, two and a half to five years, six years of age, I, I think that I was on this quest to find out what is a man made of and what is manhood about. I think in the heart of a boy, it just starts out with you right off the bat and, and you're trying to connect and, and find out, you know, who am I and how am I going to make my mark in this world? And there's nothing like being in the raw uh, with your dad in a place of However, he's formed his kind of life and, and and the kind of man he is, is you're looking up into his eyes and saying, what do you think about me? And it's this deep relationship. It's, it's, um, it's very profound. And it was very f- profound for me in my um, boyhood days, seeing that dad would often talk to me about his, his granddaddy Jess, as he called him, as name was Jesse Allison and dad had worked with Jesse because Jesse was a tree cutter and um, that's what he spent his life doing and dad would tell me about the old cross saws and how that they would run them and how he jokingly talked about a chainsaw and and how when Jesse finally got a chainsaw he didn't know you could crank it up and so he started rubbing it across the tree (laughs) manually and how just overwhelmed he was with the, with the level of work that he could do. Jesse liked to work from sun up to sundown. And he called Daddy Joe. My dad loved him so much. And Jesse was such a, a good man to him. And Jesse, in the end of his life, my mother would lead him to Christ. A couple of years before he passed away, in his latter years, he, he found the Lord. And that was such a remarkable thing for Dad as he spent those remaining years with him. Hard-working man and had a rugged individualism, a rugged determination to see a whole day's work completed. And so dad was, my dad was really formed by that kind of masculinity. And so when I came along and my brother came along, that's, that was the kind of masculinity that we were going to learn to, to uh, get respect from. Uh, if we were going to gain approval in my, my dad's eyes, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow and and you know, could you take it and work all day long? Uh, if you could, you might find manhood. If you work six days a week hard and would go to church on Sunday and then go back to work 
And, you know, if you work eight hours, you can play one hour. That was the family kind of dynamic that I started to grow up in was with my dad. And later on, you know, I, I found out that my dad, who is Carol, and, and I'm also Carol, obviously, I had heard all, all these years, you know, your name means song of joy. And that never really, like, resonated with me, although I'm all for joy. And one day I just, uh, I think my wife, she told me to look, she looked at my name and and it was kind of interesting because my name means manly or champion or fierce warrior. And I said, you know, that that actually sets right with me. Uh, being on a journey of manliness, I would say, would probably be the very thing that I would want to, that, that endeared me uh, to who I would personally see myself as. And so as the years went on and we had got to the to the mountain and Saluda and I, I tell the seminal point in one of the podcasts about how how when we got up on the mountain and the word tells me to pile up these rocks and take kerosene and light them on fire and sit down and then he goes on to tell me that you know your forefathers went through this training and I thought he meant you know my uncle Elijah and, and possibly you know Charles Spurgeon and uh, Luther Calvin and some of these names that were in our background, our family line, and and I thought, well, maybe these he means this guys. He said, and he said no to me. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went through this training. I remember just moving from that point on, and and years later, I had decided that in trying to rediscover my manhood, I thought, you know, well, you know, there's one way I can really connect to my dad, and so. I went out and did some logging with uh, Rafi Assad, and we, we loaded up some fairly large trees onto the back of a trailer, some oak and some poplar and some different tree types. And, you know, I'd say in the thousands of pounds, and I borrowed a, a meal from one of my friends, uh, Brian Baller. And it was one of those meals that you can pull with your vehicle, and I pulled it up on top of our mountain. And Baller asked me, he said, you know, Carol, I don't really get why you're doing this because you're a big bells and whistles guy. I don't know why you're, you know, you're the guy that likes everything to be all sweet tech and all that. And, you know, I was like, no, I'm, I'm changing gears. I'm, uh, I'm, I appreciate you letting me borrow this mill and I'm going to mill these big, you know, 22, 24-inch oak uh, logs with my dad and we could turn these things. Dad's powerfully strong. And uh, we take these cant hooks and, uh, we could take these big, huge logs and move them up on a trailer and then move them up on this mill. And I think I think my dad was kind of in in a way like back in heaven, you know, like he had went, died and went to heaven when his son decided, you know, in my early 40s that I was going to take up milling lumber and build something. And so I was doing this, and I don't know if you are going to understand what I'm saying here but there are certain things that like connect to you as a as a person like there are certain things that connect and there are certain things that don't and I I was milling these logs and cutting them and then I was uh, taking them down and then forming them into lumber usable lumber that I could uh, make a table with and I ended up cutting some rafters out with them and some fascia boards and and just taking my equipment and my tools and turning this into something that could be usable and uh, built some onto our deck and things and but I was going to bed at night and I was you know just kind of spent all day and uh, thinking about building a dry kiln and 
you know, and I realized that something's just not connecting with me. And like there was a part of my own meaning and purpose that was still disconnected. I had found the favor of my dad. That for me is a huge thing. I, I don't know if you deal with that, but finding, I don't know what you call your dad, but if you call him Pappy or Papa or, or Dad or Daddy or, you know, uh, what you name your daddy. But coming into his good graces is, that's a powerful experience. And I, I was enjoying my relationship with my dad because I had found something where him and I could connect. And it, it meant a lot to me, and I think it meant a lot to him because he he's a rugged mountain man. And uh, he likes to cut trees now. And that meant something to me, but something inside of myself still was disconnected. And, and so I went to bed one night, and I I think I'd been wrestling in bed. And I couldn't get my sleep, and I, it was about 2.30 in the morning. And I, I went and sat on my couch, and I just... I said to the Holy Spirit, I was like, I really need help. I need you to give me a framework for for manhood. I need a framework for what you see. And I need to understand life. And, and it, it is my hope in this episode that this is going to be so profound for you, especially you men. And I think it'll be profound for you ladies because maybe it'll give you a way to capture your men and to understand them and maybe your sons. First of all, so I'm sitting there on my couch, and I, and I, I've got in the background of my mind. I have Wild at Heart, not Wild at Heart, but I have Father by God by Eldridge, in the back of my my framework already. And so he he went through these six aspects of masculine development from boyhood to cowboy to warrior to lover to king to sage. And so I'm you know got that framework built, and I would highly suggest if you're not. Re- read his work that you do because it's really helpful but I needed something deeper and more a concept that could help me to work through what I was going through and I, of course I didn't know where to look as I never do but if you will go to the Lord and just say I need help he's so gracious to help you and so I don't know how I came across this but I I don't know if I placed it into my like iPad or something like that what does it mean to be a man? I don't know. I don't know. But at 2.30 in the morning, I'm seeking the Lord. And I find something, and it, it marked me, and it's marked me to this day. And I think as we begin to look through this episode called Rise Root, that you'll you'll start to see see something here. Um, so I, I'm opening my iPad, and I get this up, and I find this article in theartofmanliness.com about the three archetypes of American manliness. Now, I try to just give you another rough framework of something that I I understand. And I believe this, that men go through these different aspects and uh, in the way that they procure resources for their family. Because we're called to provide and protect and love our families. And so I'm going to just lay out a little rough thing here and see before I enter into this art of manliness and these archetypes because I have this understanding in my my framework uh, number one men can work through products and and what I mean is the selling of products trade you know you can trade products move products and there, there's all kinds of things from you know automobiles to beds to to furniture to houses whatever we can move through product to provide provision. And then 
Secondly, there's a, secondly a services. We can offer a service like uh, you can work for the fire department or the police department. You can work for military. Um, you can work in the post office. Um, you can uh, give your life in ministry. You can give your life in service, and then you can procure a resource through service. Then there's a, a third uh, developmental process that's through causes. You can uh, lobby, you know, lobby Congress. You can work for a health, a humanitarian uh, organizations. You could to work to raise up a nonprofits and cause driven type things to feed the poor, feed the hungry, and and you can work out of that. And then fourthly, you can get into prototype prototypes and and what i mean is like research and development engineering building things that's never been done before space type things and you can get into the prototype level of working through and there's so much to be said about this and i'm not saying it all i just want to be clear about that but this is just a rough framework that i'm giving you and then fifthly this is something that was figuring into my understanding that uh, from prototype come with the next place will be archetype. Now, essentially, my understanding about an archetype is it's an overarching understanding that reaches deep down inside of the subconscious of an individual and forms their sense of identity and who they are. And we we work within a lot of us work from an archetype position into these you know these four areas that I'm speaking of like from the prototypical level back to, let's say, a causes or services and products. But if the archetype is of, your, of who you are is not correct, then you basically will handle yourself in a wrong way in regards to these four different dimensions of procurement. And this is what I'm going through. You know, personally, I'm having this issue where the archetype of who I am doesn't match with the way that I want to produce. And I'm having a disconnect between what God is saying to me and who I am as a man and how I make my mark in this world. And so so I I had come out of the service side because I was military, loved it, and I was a serviceman. And that's where my identity kind of seated in that number two place. I've got a lot of good friends that are they move and trade products. I've got some really great, I know some great people in causes and then in prototypes. And so that, you know, I don't know what dimension of life you're working within, but it's probably one of those four or maybe, uh, you know, a combination of the four. What was going on with me in this moment? And I think that this is possibly going on inside of the life of a lot of people where I wouldn't even be doing this episode is the art type of the way I, again, had understood myself was off. And so the Lord, I believe, leads me to these three archetypes of American manliness. This comes from a book by Michael Kimmel, Manhood in America. And he lays out these three archetypes, and we're going to go through them just for a minute before we enter into uh, the scriptures and we enter into some prophetic encounters with the Lord. So the three archetypes that he uh, works through is the self-made man, the heroic artisan, and the genteel patriarch. So in this article, it's written that the, the 19th century's rapid industrialization 
we're going to kind of go backwards here because he, he's going to lay them out as genteel patriarch, heroic artisan, and self-made man. But I'm going to start with you with the self-made man archetype. In the 19th century's rapid industrialization had greatly weakened the genteel patriarch and heroic and artisan archetypes and gave rise to a distinctly American one. Uh, slave work plantations have vanished. So let's go through these three archetypes of American manliness, starting with the genteel patriarch. The genteel patriarch, in his book, Kimmel argues that during the late 18th century, when America was just in its infancy, three ideals of manhood competed for dominance. The genteel patriarch, the heroic artisan, and the self-made man. In the end, according to Kimmel, the self-made man won out, and American manliness today is defined by an archetype of rugged, self-reliant men who, through sheer force of will, can shape his destiny no matter his circumstances. While the self-made man triumphed as a defining ideal of American masculinity, the genteel patriarch and the heroic artisan archetypes still influence how Americans think about manhood. Now, the genteel patriarch was an ideal of masculinity that was transplanted directly from Europe to the New World. A genteel patriarch defined manhood in terms of aristocratic land ownership. He was an upper-class man who prized honor, character, etiquette, and refined taste in clothing and food. The genteel patriarch sought to govern his vast estate with benevolence and kindness, and he spent much of his time doting on his children and ensuring they received the moral education they needed to be active and engaged citizens in the young republic. For the genteel patriarch, farming was the only occupation that offered total independence and self-autonomy. Through farming, a man could develop the virtues of honor, self-reliance, and hospitality. Land ownership provided the genteel patriarch with status, identity, and a tradition on which to build a manly family lineage. Of course, what's ironic about the genteel patriarch is that while he upheld an agrarianism as the ideal manly way of life, he himself rarely tilled the ground or sowed the seeds on the land. Rather, slaves or hired help did most of the manual labor while the genteel patriarch stayed busy studying art, philosophy, and literature. While the archetype of genteel patriarch was noble and virtuous, the reality was out of reach to the majority of men. Remember, for the genteel patriarch, manhood meant primarily one thing, land ownership. If you didn't own property, you weren't a man. Right away, this excluded the lower classes and, of course, uh, black men who in many states couldn't even legally own land. Worse still, black men were often the property of genteel patriarch and made his leisurely cultural lifestyle possible. Now, a genteel patriarch will go on to uh, decline It was diminished by two factors, American independence and the opening of the frontier. In the period after the Revolutionary War, the new country sought to form its own character and identity. Affectations that smacked of monarchy and aristocracy fell out of favor as not sufficiently democratic or American. At the same time, pioneers were heading out west and making a go at life on a frontier that required a tougher, grittier kind of man than the genteel patriarch. Thus, the genteel patriarch began to seen as an anachronistic ideal, no longer in sync with the changing culture of the nation. Once praised as the 
paradigm of stately dignity, he began to be seen as the foppish and effeminate dandy who had a womanish attachment to European countries, especially France. As America shifted from agrarian to the industrial society, the genteel patriarch quickly became an endangered species. His values and traditions didn't transfer well to the new fast-paced market economy. Seeing that his days were numbered, the genteel patriarch made his last stand in the American South. The issues of slavery and states' rights can add another question at stake at the battlefields of the Civil War. There were the competition between two ideals of manliness. The Northern press often characterized the genteel patriarch of the South as lazy, effeminate, and dandified, while lauding Northern men for embracing the hardy ideals of the self-made man. Southerners countered that Yanks lacked refinement and honor and cared for nothing in life other than that of the almighty dollar. The South's defeat in the Civil War brought an inevitable eclipse of the genteel patriarch and the ascendancy of the self-made man as the ideal American manhood. While the agrarian society of the genteel patriarch has long disappeared, the influence of this male archetype is still evident in American society. As he did in the 19th century, the genteel patriarch today serves as a foil to more popular forms of masculinity. Men who seem too cultured, refined, and style conscious are sometimes dismissed as wimpy and not sufficiently uh, masculine. It is now, as it was then, really a class issue guided by the belief that only those with gobs of money have the time to attend to the minutia of etiquette and fashion, while real men are too hard at work to notice such things. The genteel patriarch archetype remains suspect in many minds because of its perception as non-democratic. This idea can most clearly be seen as it was played out in the political era. Ever since Andrew Jackson took the White House with a campaign promising to represent the common man, presidential candidates have had to make a show of their rugged masculinity while downplaying characteristics that would mark them as a genteel patriarch or, in modern parlance, an elitist. A candidate must be intelligent, but not snobbishly so, articulate and well-mannered, but able to drink beer with factory workers and eat corn dogs at state fairs. A familiar tactic in modern campaigns is the conservative candidate to grab the Democratic common man mantle while painting his liberal rival out of touch, dandified, Europe-admiring, genteel patriarch. Of course, both candidates typically have traits befitting this archetype, which leads to battle to see who is best at spending their own culture background and attacking their uh, contenders. In the 88 election, George H.W. Bush characterized Dukakis' views as born in Harvard Yards Boutique while defending his own Ivy League alma mater, Yale, as not being the same kind of enclave of liberalism and elitism. In 04, George W. Bush's campaign was able to paint the choice as being between a rugged cowboy type of man who cleared brush on his ranch and a stiff Massachusetts liberal married to a multi-million dollar catch-up, Harris. And a minor flap was created in 08, when the then-candidate Obama asked a crowd in Iowa, anyone gone to, into Whole Foods lately and see what they charge for arugula? Critics immediately pounced on the question as evidence of Obama being a highfalutin elitist, or in other words, your classic genteel patriarch. While the genteel patriarch has fallen out in favor in America, the heroic artisan and self-made man uh, continue to live on as ideals of American manliness. We'll turn our attention to the heroic artisan. In that heroic artisan archetype, it's a symbol and or an ideal 
that has come into our culture consciousness. So the heroic artisan, according to Kimmel, that is like the genteel patriarch, was an ideal of masculinity, also transplanted from Europe to American Collins. He was an honest craftsman, sleeves rolled up, apron tied around his body, toiling away in a small independently owned shop. Heroic artisan could be found working and tinkering in breweries, printing houses, blacksmith shops throughout the new nation. And farmers who owned and worked such small pieces of land, unlike the genteel patriarch's vast estates, could also be counted among the ranks of the heroic artisan. Heroic artisan, manliness meant primarily independence and self-reliance. His independence made him an invaluable citizen of the new republic, a man whose vote could not be bought or sold. Fiercely independent, the heroic artisan also valued community. He was loyal to his fellow craftsmen, treated his customers, neighbors fairly, and embraced his civic duties. He was the patriarch of his family, and with his shop often located in or near his family's house, he was able to oversee his household throughout the day. Work relationships were very personal for the heroic artisan. He didn't hire random strangers to work in his shop, but took in the sons of neighbors and friends as apprentices. He would teach them all the secrets of the craftsman's guild. Thus, the heroic artisan didn't see himself as a boss, but rather a mentor who had a responsibility not only to mold his young apprentice into a master craftsman, but also to initiate him into manhood. The heroic artisan was driven by a philosophy of producerism, a code which said that manly virtue was only earned through hard work and creating more than you consumed. The heroic artisan made real, tangible, quality goods with his hands. There was a direct link between his labor and the final product. His work not only provided a living, but also gave him an identity of which he could be proud. His products were made to last. They had to be his personal reputation as a craftsman and as a man, period, was on the line. The heroic artisan saw the genteel patriarch's decadent wealth as a corrupting influence on manliness. Extreme wealth to the heroic artisan made men lazy, slothful, and effeminate. And even if the genteel patriarch created more than he consumed, it didn't count in the heroic artisan's book because the genteel patriarch didn't create that wealth with the sweat of his own brow, with his own rough, worn hands. How one made his living was paramount to the heroic artisan. Now, there was a decline of the heroic artisans within our nation in the 19th century. Nine out of every ten American men owned their own shop, store, or small farm. However, this ideal of manliness would soon move from reality to an archetype. The United States became more industrialized throughout the 19th century, and the heroic artisan quickly became nearly obsolete. Work that once required the knowledge and skill of a master craftsman can now be done cheaper and faster with a machine. Real wages for skilled labor declined as the small craftsmen tried to compete with a large factory sprouting up across American landscape. No longer able to support themselves or their families, many craftsmen and laborers had to close down their shops and went to work in factories owned by other men. Instead of spending hours concentrating on skilled tasks, men were now given a single, mindless job to perform over and over again. Workers lost their physical connection to the final product and became alienated from their labor. The world seemed to have been flipped upside down. Those on the ground who actually made things were underpaid and undervalued, while those at the very top who made their living through invisible deals at an office thousand miles away cultivated enormous wealth. The heroic artist had lost the autonomy he valued so much, and that loss of independence was equated with a loss of manhood. 
So where would a sense of manliness come from for the worker who sat at a desk all day? How could one be manly without independence? Where was virility to be found in increasing faceless bureaucracies? How many clerks or salesmen feel masculine doing the women's work? What became of rugged individualism inside intensively rationalized corporations? How could a man be a patriarch when his job kept him away from home for most of his waking hours? The heroic artisan bow out of the fight throughout 19th century tradesmen form work working men's political parties, unions, in an attempt to hold on to their status, their livelihoods, and their political power. The pamphlets, literature put out by these parties extolled the virtue of manly autonomy that trade and craft work provided while equating factory work with political, economic, and even sexual emasculation. As one tradesman from 1834 saw it, the factory system was calculated to change the character of people from bold and free to dependent and slavish. The battle against industrialization was futile, of course. The market economy demanded efficiency and cost-cutting over craftsmanship and pride. The heroic artisan would not be the ideal or archetype that would guide American manliness into the 20th century. The self-made man archetype was better suited for the impersonal, fast-paced, and industrialized society that America became after the Civil War. The outsourcing of more manufacturing jobs and the shift to an information economy has turned the heroic artisan into much more than a legend than a reality. Many a dweller has willed away the time of work dreaming about owning a little shop, making furniture, or repairing motorcycles. Comics like Dilbert and movies like Office Space mine humor from the alienation men feel from their work and the ridiculousness of jobs which seem utterly unconnected to any tangible product or anything productive at all. Shop classes have been stripped from the curriculum of high schools and blue-collar jobs are undervalued and unappreciated. Learning a trade is sadly seen not as heroic, but as the resort of those who cannot hack it in college. Yet the pull of the heroic artisan archetype is still felt by many men, a standard by which they unconsciously measure their lives. In fact, the further we move away from the heroic artisan archetype, the more we seem to long to be connected to it. No matter the ubiquity and prestige of white-collar work, there's something deep in the male consciousness which longs to be working with one's hands in some way. It is also what drives a masculine appreciation for quality, well-crafted goods. We admire and wish to support our craftsmen brothers, even if we ourselves will never belong to the guild. We want to know that real brow sweat and passion went into making something. Savvy marketers understand the influence they pitch products that involve accessorizing and attempt to give men the feel of creating. Uh, you got other companies like L.L. Bean, Eddie Bauer, and Woolrich have started touting their history and heritage while rolling out new items that are modeled on products from their archives. And a new style of sensibility has developed with men ditching their Ed Hardy tees for flannel Woolrich shirts and axlings. Men are increasingly eschewing cheap mass-produced goods for those that claim an artisanal heritage which are more expensive, but they're made to last. And I, you know, I can attest to that because I've got me a pair of boots on from the 1890s uh, or 1880s, Wolverines. They were expensive, but they're handmade and stitched. And, uh, you know, I've been wearing them for, I guess, about four or five years now. Now, what happens next is we go into the self-made man archetype uh, because this is what is going to come on the scene 
and as much about what is happening today. So the self-made man was a restless go-getter who constantly strove for success in the public sphere and the marketplace. Instead of basing his identity as a man in land ownership, genealogy, or artisanal skills, the self-made man rooted his manliness in personal achievement, status, and wealth. The birth of the self-made man archetype represented profound changes in the culture, the most significant being the rise of individualism. A man's loyalty shifted from his family and community to himself. From steady toil and a lifelong labor to a a desire for novel and immediate rewards, a man needed to rely on his inner resources, not the help of others. Success was for those willing to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Men no longer had to do just what their fathers had done or stay in the same small villages where their family had always resided. Country was full of opportunities and young men struck out on their own. Hoping to find individual success, these new opportunities offered a seemingly level playing field where any man, regardless of inherited wealth or family income, could start a new life and make a fortune for himself. A man could enter a company at the bottom and attempt to work his way to the top, or he could head out west trying to make it as a cowboy or strike gold as a miner. Heritage and trade skills were no longer seen as the keys to success. Your focus now was shifted to a man's personal characteristics and qualities. These were the things every man had control over and could be moved into any situation or location. The self-made man strove to cultivate the values of thrift, hard work, persistence, and entrepreneurship. And while his inner qualities were important, it was also paramount to the self-made man who made his way in the world of business to appear successful to others to cultivate a winning personality. If you wanted to make your way to the top, you had to learn how to make friends and influence people. A self-made man archetype was fueled and celebrated by both real-life stories and dime store novels. A man like Andrew Carnegie was held up as a prime example of a self-made man, someone who had risen from factory bobbin boy to captain of industry. Stories of average Joes hitting it rich with a gold mine or creating a vast cattle empire flooded back east. Adventure books about mountain men and frontiersmen using nothing but their strength and wits to conquer the wild frontier fascinated young boys and men alike. Horatio Alger created a whole cottage industry from stories of boys who lived a clean life and did the right thing and were thus rewarded by being plucked from obscure poverty and into a comfortable life. But despite the glean given the self-made man in the culture, it also had a dark side for manliness. Manhood for the genteel patriarch and heroic artisan was more stable once a man had established his estate or craft. He could feel secured or assured of his manliness. But the manhood of the self-made man was ever in doubt. It tied as it was to external factors and the whims of financial success. Just as the value of a company stock fluctuated from day to day, so could the value of the self-made man. He constantly had to prove and earn his manhood in the marketplace, knowing all the while that at any moment it could be taken away by job loss, sickness, or financial ruin. This constant need to prove one's manliness day in and day out created a sense of anxiety and insecurity among American men that we still see today. One day, you're a corporate warrior on the very top of your game. The next day, you're unemployed in slippers and a robe, feeling emasculated as you scan the classifieds. A life governed by market economics influenced male friendships as well. The refined respect between genteel patriarchs and the close-knit fraternities of heroic artisans were replaced with more isolating and distant relationships among men. Every man was out for himself. It was a dog-eat-dog world. Instead of being a potential friend, the man next to you was your competition. 
And it's hard to develop the cutthroat instinct needed to destroy the competition when the competition happens to be your best friend. Of the three archetypes of American manliness, the self-made man archetype continues to have the most influence down to this present day. The idea that any man from any background can become whatever he wishes by dent or by his hard work has become almost a religious tenet of an American ideal. It's what continues to inspire immigrants from all over the world to come to this country with hopes of starting a better life. And politicians try to sell themselves not as products of privilege, but as self-made men. My father was a mill worker. And we are far more interested in and apt to applaud the story of a man who came from virtually nothing to make it big than we are the man who came from an Ivy League educated parents SAT tutoring in a suburban home. But the popularity of the self-made man tends to wax and wane. During times of economic woe like the Great Depression, where a man might have worked tremendously hard and still ended up selling apples on the corner, it tended to be viewed with more skepticism. At the same time, however, it also added to men's shame. If success was entirely based on pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, some reason that something was surely deficient about the unemployed. While the self-made man archetype may have taken a bit of a hit during the most recent recession in 08, it's also given life to the rise of the internet. And the internet provides the frontier the 19th century once did, a seemingly level playing field in which any man with enough pluck might make a fortune. Men no longer need to wait to go through official channels to get their writings, art, music, and so out to the world. Internet celebrities rise and fall by directly appealing to the masses. Today, however, the watchwords are not hard work and persistent. Instead, the new ideal is overnight success. The dream is to create the next Facebook or post the next viral video. Of course, there have always been those that think the self-made man was a myth from the beginning. And critics argue that the real-life self-made men represent extreme outliers and that the vast majority of those from privileged backgrounds end up in society's top slots, while the majority of those who start out poor will never escape poverty. The separation between advocates for and against the self-made men often, always, although not always, break down along political lines. Those on the right celebrate the self-made man using his existence as justification for a more hands-off government in which, at least theoretically, men and businesses rise and fall based solely on merit. Those on the left point to socioeconomic factors as being the great determiner of a man's success and thus look for ways in the government that can attempt to step in and level the playing field. And that's much of what is going on in our policy debates today. Now, so I'm sitting there on my couch reading this, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking through this, and I really was taken back to that moment where I, I was sitting there with those rocks and the, and the and the fire going and and realizing something that there's a difference between a, a self-made man and a god-made man there's there's a difference between there's a difference between that and I and the word just started to speak to me and and he said you know what did I say to you and I said well you said that your forefathers went through this training and I said yes Lord I and your forefathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called the patriarchs. And when I was thinking about this and putting this together, I, I started to realize that, you know, what I was doing out there in effect with uh, uh, running the lumber and running it down the rails and everything, that, and the reason why it wasn't really connecting with me was 
because that was a function of a heroic artisan. I, I was looking for a way to stay on my family's estate with my wife and kids and to run that mill and build this uh, kiln and everything and then start to build furniture and build different items. And, and I have a high respect for that kind of craftsman. And I, I'm sure many men are way better at it than me. You know, my family comes from this big background of builders and tree cutters. And I thought, you know, I can take a go at it. But like I said, something was disconnecting. And and I had resonated quite a bit with uh, this this patriarchy. But I, I would say, you know, on the genteel patriarch and what we went over, that the idea of uh, slave ownership, you know, I'm definitely opposed to that. I'm not opposed to employment. But uh, not seeing the dignity of other races and things like that, I could never agree with that and that we would place someone in slavery. But the idea, though, of having an estate and, and having a family home and being able to be with your, your wife and kids and, and being able to produce off of that land, I've, I would say that I highly valued that. And I'm going to like put a little place in here because... Uh, of a book that I had read earlier on. It was called The Epic of Eden by uh, Sandra Rickard. For you men who are listening to this and you really want to go deep in this, I want to just commend to you to get a hold of her book Uh, because what she does is she lays out God's covenantal methodology in Scripture as it relates to how the Lord redeems through covenant. And she lays out in such an expert way uh, how the Lord works and redeems through family. And he redeems through the male line through what she talks about. She puts out three points that he redeems through patriarchy, through patrilineal, and patrilocal. And she she takes this and she shows how the Lord will redeem through the male uh, heads of their family is passed down to the oldest son and then the Lord will bring through the oldest son unless the oldest son is not uh, seen fit for instance like he saw in Jacob or you know you'll have other situations like this in scripture and that the Lord will redeem the families through the male headship and it's really good and it's a really good work especially in regards to economy and uh, C.R. Wiley he just he just came out uh, with a book, and I'd like to commend it also to you. It's The Household in the Cosmos. C.R. Wiley is going to start uh, breaking this down in a way that would be very helpful for you, too. Hello, my name is Henry. We want to take this time to give you a break and consider the content and weigh what you've just heard. We also want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and for those of you who are supporting this ministry both prayerfully and financially. If you have not, take the time to listen to the Collida Vision and Mission episode. We invite you to email us at info at org for questions and suggestions. And if you are led to, give at paypal.me forward slash mzhop. Now, let us return to the episode in session. You know, I believe what I'm implying here, and uh, you're probably hearing this throughout these uh, episodes that we're doing, is that man can be transformed and reshaped into something that they variably are not. With that in mind, 
and that's a I would say that's that core is a thesis upon which this whole entire galactic progeny is based is is that you can become something that you're not uh, by engaging the death drive of the Lord and what I mean is if you lose your life for his sake in the gospel you will find your life Peter talks about taking on the divine nature and so the nature that you're born with is the nature that you get but once upon taking Jesus as Savior and Lord you're receiving uh, by grace you're receiving by walking in faith with him and trusting him you're receiving his nature to become something way more profound than what you could have ever been born into now that's going to require something of you and of me and uh, in this it, it, this this podcast series puts a requirement on you as um, and I'm primarily in, in this area talking to men uh, it puts a requirement on you to say man I don't want to just sit in the construct and concept of maybe the way I've been raised or what I came up in I want to grow and so this is a whole implication that's going on with this and so as we go into this uh, developmental process and I'm going back and looking at these three archetypes in American uh, history I'm implying and I hope that you're hearing this very clear that there's a path of within us that something can get to the core like go listen to shell shock i mean even if you need to stop the recording now go listen to shell shock and hear that and then come back uh, to this but that there's something in inside of of us that can be stimulated to cause us to grow and evolve not like darwinian evolution that's not what i mean but to grow by partaking of the divine nature and receive the nature of benefactor as father to go on and become something that we're not now with that being the case many of us men have been we have developed upon certain kinds of lines and maybe through our father our father figures in our life they've developed us upon certain kind of lines and this is how we understand ourselves and and so again i'm challenging you and uh, i'm being challenged and so to to become something beyond what we are and uh, to grow so these three archetypes when i was sitting there on the couch i felt the challenge of the father to primarily not to not find myself as uh that i wasn't going to be able to go on and become the man i was meant to be and i'm not saying this is for every case for every man but i can't go on and find a meaning and purpose in the lord if I'm disagreeing with the way that he speaks to me and the way he communicates with me, that he communicates with me and, and calls me something, and then I come out of agreement with that, then I'm not going to get his pleasure. Well, I may get his pleasure, but I'm going to hinder my own human development because the Father will not take a version of you than the one that he sees, a different version. Let me say that again. He's not going to accept a different version than the one that he sees you to already be because he sees the beginning from the end. And so if you're him hawing around with yourself and you're trying to find uh, yourself in some other version, a version that's maybe been placed on you familially, a version that's been placed on you uh, like from a fraternity, a version that's been placed on you financially, a version or an image of you that has been placed on you based off of uh, politically Jesus is uh, wants to transform us beyond all that and I'm just saying be a man 
become something different than the one that you've always been associated with. Become and allow the Lord to work grace into your life. Listen to the Father's voice and uh, get out of lethargy and complacency and get out of your own performance moralistic ideology and come up and, and I'm not saying pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's that's right base legal mindset. I'm not saying I'm like I'm saying go to the Father, get in relationship with him, go blank slate where you don't know what you're doing and you can't think straight and get into a relationship with him and let him transform you. So in in this process, a lot of us are known or find our life within these different uh, elements. And so, again, and I'm just going to lay this out because I was woke up by the Father uh, to communicate this to you by the Holy Spirit is through these different facets. So uh, many of us are known either we can come into uh, our life and our economy by these ways, product, service, cause, prototype, archetype. And my position here with what I'm being given a mandate to do is to call something beyond our type called um, Clastronaut. And so I need to lay a foundation for you in that, and that's what I'm attempting to do. Now, through the product, service, cause, or stereotype, product, prototype, and up into our type, one thing that has to happen for you to grow through those is they require greater levels of authenticity and integrity. For instance, if, if you're selling a tangible good versus selling yourself in service, if you just kind of think this out, products don't require, they don't require the same level of integrity and self-knowing that service does. Because the product itself sells itself. If you're a decent salesman or you know how to market a good properly, you can take that good and people need it. Like, for instance, if, if you sell watermelons, the watermelon speaks for itself. Um, if you if you give a fair price on it after you've grown it in your garden and you go to, to the market to sell it, the watermelon speaks for itself. You're saying, well, the market says I can get a three ninety eight to five ninety eight out of this watermelon, and I, I was able to put it in the ground and it cost me a dollar fifty to raise it. Well, I have a net profit of two fifty to four fifty off this watermelon. Well, people don't really have a problem paying the price for the watermelon because it's a tangible good. And as long as your rate is fair, they're not looking at you thinking, I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder if he's being integrous. The price itself for the good speaks for itself. I think you get my point that another dimensional level, that if you come into service orientation, for instance, let's say you're a fireman, policeman, uh, military service, uh, ministry service, people start to look at your character. Like, for instance, a fireman, well, you've got to show courage. You've got to be able to go in the face of danger. You've got to be able to be pretty decently physically fit to be a fireman. You've got to have a situational awareness, a wherewithal. You've got to be quick on your feet. You can't be just like uh, sitting around being a lazy person. If the cause comes to you, you've got to, be, you've got to know your equipment. You've got to be probably pretty disciplined and uh, ethically moral. You've got to care about others beyond yourself. I mean, we're just talking about what a fireman's service takes. He's not selling a product. He's giving his life. And so when, if you move out of that dimension into the next one, which is cause-driven, and causes are uh, driven primarily on stereotypes. What I mean is you're going to lobby and let's say you become a lobbyist or um, to lobby for a certain cause. 
Well, now it requires even more in- integrity and authenticity because why? Because now you've got to rally other people around the cause. So people are going to be looking deeper, even more into depth about what kind of person you are. Because you're not just going to rescue like one or a whole household like a fireman would or a military office, military serviceman would. It's, it's not you as individual as much now. It's you as one who is building a community of people around you who believe in what you're promoting and what you're saying. And so out of those uh, causes, there have been great people raised up. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., that's a really good example of a cause-driven man who, who, uh, who had a phenomenal uh, oratory skill and speech set. And uh, you're probably familiar with I Have a Dream. That message that he promoted and spoke, it made a big impact on a lot of people. So his oratory skill was really important in rallying people around a cause. And, you know, later on, people find out in retrospect things about some, and I don't know how many people knew of what was going on in his private life. There were some compromising issues. And what do we say? We say, well, man, he was a great speaker and things, but there were some compromised issues going on in his life. Why? Because he was a great cause leader who worked around a, a stereotype. Uh, to bring in a change that needed to happen in regards to uh, civil rights. And there's been many other cause leaders that have been raised up, and we have trouble with cause leaders who don't show us a high level of integrity and authenticity in their private life. So if you get into causes, and some people do, that's a part that goes with it. Now, the next place that we can work within is, is prototype and I want to like give some, you know, some language to this and define it. So one of the things that we need to look at when we're looking at stereotype, prototype, and archetype is uh, we need to know maybe what the root words are. And so type comes from the Latin term typus or image. Ultimately, is derived from the Greek word typos or impression. It's defined as a model, a distinctive sign. Excuse me, a set of distinguishable qualities. Idiomatic usage for the word includes like type A personality, indicating a high-strung person based on popular perception of a discredited psychological theory. Casting against type may referring to when performers are selected for roles they don't uh, superficially seem suited for, or not my type, the dismissal of another person because of personal incompatibility. Now, when we're looking at uh, archetype here and prototype, they are direct synonyms. They both mean original pattern or model or perfect example. However, an archetype, uh, which literally means first model, also refers to uh, Carl Jung's uh, concept of an idea or image from the collective subconscious. It has a more intellectual connotation. So the prefix arc denotes the most accomplished or high-ranking of a type, like an arc rival or an arc villain, as does the suffix arch, which like patriarch or hierarch or archy. It, it is the basis of terms describing a system of government like monarchy or an organizational scheme like hierarchy, interestingly. Because the prefix was so often employed, as in the examples above, to describe a nefarious person, arc acquired an adjectival 
uh, sense of mischievous or impudent. The arc is well in well arch, referring to a structural member, has a different etymology and is akin to arc, like A-R-C. Now, prototype has the same literal meaning, but its primary sense is more utilitarian, referring to a standard configuration, the initial model of a constructed object, or an earlier version of an organism or a device. Proto prefix is relatively obscure, occurring mostly in scientific uh, terminology like protoplasm, which is the beginning molding, or a protozoa, which means a beginning animal, are examples of its use most familiar uh, to like lay people. The root word as an integral part of a larger term refer then to a suffix appears in like protocol from uh, a Greek term meaning the first sheet referring to a code or a convention dictating proper procedure. So stereotype means something that matches a fixed or universal pattern, but unlike the other terms, it usually has a negative connotation. It refers to an idea uh, carelessly formed based on ignorance or bigotry that one class of people generally understands to be well typical of another class. And so just to kind of bring this back around because we're talking about like moving through product, service, cause based in stereotype through prototype and into archetype because it's my interest in this episode is to say that it's important to come into an understanding of what the major archetypes are that are forming our subconscious and decide which archetype we're going to come into agreement with because at least for me personally there's been like a transition in my own life where I've had to come through product Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time in products I did in my early days like from the age of 12 to 18 and then I I went into service and got into the military and spent nine years in the Air Force and then I, I got out of the service and got into ministry now I've been in that for like the last 15 years and a lot of what I've been doing was cause driven and then uh, spent probably the last five years in a prototype modeling phase and just am getting transitioned by the, by the Lord into this archetype phase. So it's very important. Uh, it has been for me. And I think if you really think this out with me and as we proceed forward and lay in a proper foundation here, that this archetype mentality is very important that you take time to consider what is being said here because this collective archetype is informing much of the way that you're thinking every day about your life as a man. And certainly I've been placed here to place a challenge. Uh, you know, if, if that's what my life is for, it's to basically challenge all the presupposition. Because they've been challenged in me, well, I'm going to challenge them in you. I'm challenging your ideologies and challenging your, um, your philosophy and challenging your theology with this particular episode as I have myself been challenged by it. So again, prototype, if we move out of the cause phase, and there's a lot of this that's been going on. I just speaking of prototype realm. Uh, think of Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX. No, he's talking about terraforming Mars. And I, I don't know if you know what that means, but they would, they're talking about putting off nuclear explosions in the atmosphere to create an atmosphere above Mars where they could create the ability through explosion to create a cloud layer over Mars so that they could have proper generation of plant and food base so that there could be the possibility of putting life on Mars. 
this is prototype work because this has never happened. People haven't went and put nuclear explosions in an atmosphere over a, a planet to terraform it. And they're, they're working on tech like Tesla. Uh, Tesla was a prototype man. Even some of his technologies are just now being wild, more accepted and being brought to market. I mean, we're seeing it in, uh, in the cars that are being built by uh, Elon Musk. Uh, Elon Musk is, and like Silicon Valley, this, this whole R&D process of prototype. And uh, we also have it out like in Area 51. And the whole research facilities that are highly classified and secret that have been going on out in, in Nevada with the uh, United States Air Force and CIA. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with like Skunk Works. But those guys were amazing and they built like the SR-71 Blackbird and, uh, and their X, X-15 projects and some of the in-depth science that was going on. We have people that are in R&D in the areas of all kinds of different fields. I mean, another one is probably genomic uh, DNA research field and going inside the body and finding the whole entire map of the human DNA process. There's a massive uh, shift in happening in our culture. Uh, that's just exploding right now in this prototype realm. And with prototypes, what you have to do is you're given an initial model or constructing an object from an organism or, or device, but it's it's obscure, meaning that it's going to require constant reviewing and restaging and reworking and remodeling to get it where you want it to be. And what happens is if, if you go on in the model and you get it uh, where you want it to be, then you come into something that is what we would call an art type. So this is what a model, the model should look like. This is like a more completion of the project. This is um, the ideal image. So this is what the model should in its connotation or in the subconscious of our mind actually look like. If it is right, it should look this way. Now, when I was woke up by the Lord, it was like, okay, you got product, service, cause, prototype, art type. Then the Lord's like, and then I was like, then what? He's like, classed or not. And I was like, wow. And so, but the art type's got to be right. And I want to just say this. The man who is the perfect art type of a man that is fully 100% man and 100% God is the Lord. I mean, Jesus. He is the, he is the quintessential archetype. Uh, everything in him is perfect. You can read about it in Hebrews 1. He is the full expression of the Father. He is what, when uh, Philip said, reveal to us uh, the Father. Show us the archetype. He says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I am the archetype of the Father. And this is what blew the disciples away. The archetype went to a cross of his own free will and was murdered on a tree as a common criminal. And of course was buried, raised from the dead. And the last thing we see Jesus doing is ascending. And I, I would just like to say that out of joy, uh, he ascended as a classronaut, a, a rejoicing son who is seated right now beside the father. He is the first model he is the, the last man. He is the right model. Um, another way to say this is like Adam would have been like prototype, but Jesus is archetype. 
uridamic nature is a prototype that can be reformed into look like the archetype, which is Christ. But there's something beyond our humanness that we're going to be transitioning in the end of this age. When we see the Lord, we'll go from archetype to clastronaut. And clastronaut coming from the language of clown, astronaut. Uh, my wife, she growing up, she wanted to be a clown, and I wanted to be an astronaut. And so the two of us together... Uh, you know, as one flesh receiving this ministry makes a clastronaut. And I said, Lord, what is it? He's, he said, it's a rejoicing son and daughter who is seated in heavenly places with me, conducting rulership upon the earth as a glorified son and daughter. And so we're at the, we're coming to the end of an era of at the end of an age that the fullness of the reality of this man, Jesus, as quintessential archetype, has laid his life down and by the blood so that we could be transformed into uh, glorified uh, sons and daughters. Now, these three archetypes that I've mentioned, it's a self-made man that was written about in Kimmel's book, self-made man, the heroic artisan, and the Gentile patriarch. The one that is used in scripture with the most redeeming agent is the Gentile patriarch. That archetype is where the Lord brings his redeeming work. Now, I don't mean maybe you have to take away the genteel part as it relates to some of the framework of the past, but I wouldn't take away the gentle man aspect or a gentle man um, because this meek man, Jesus said, learn of me for I am meek and lowly of heart. That's the only time that he ever says learn of me because meekness implies the idea of power under control. And it means not to utilize your power in a way except to be a blessing to other people. He's, he says that he's lowly or humble, meaning that he is fully dependent on the Father. And so that is the path of Gentile patriarchy. And the presupposition I'm working off of here is that Gentile patriarchy is the archetype that we're uh, to look at that Gentile patriarchy implies Davidic monarchy. I want to just uh, lay out Davidic monarchy now. And what I believe is the transition that we're in, in the end of this age, in the preparation for the Lord's return. And there's a need for an acceptance and an understanding that a uh, monarchy is going to be coming on the earth because the Lord is going to rule and reign and we're going to uh, reign with him. Now, in uh, Isaiah 55, it says in verse 3, Incline your ear, submit and consent to the divine will, and come to me here, and your soul will revive. And I will make an everlasting covenant or a league with you, even the sure mercy, the kindness, the good will, and the compassion that I promise to David. Behold, I have appointed him, David, as a representative of the Messiah, or the Messiah himself, to be a witness, one who shall testify of salvation to the nations, a prince and commander to the peoples. What is Isaiah saying here? I believe he's saying, hey, look, I want to, I'm asking you, listen up to me, hear my will. I want to bring revival to your soul. And I'm going to do this by giving you an everlasting covenant and getting in league with you. Now, getting in league with you means implies that that we could be out of league with him. 
And God the Father is wanting to bring us into league with him by extending mercy and goodwill and compassion that he promised to David. Now, David had a heart after God. And you know, I highly recommend you take and listen or read A.W. Pink's uh, Life of David series. It's, it's really well done, and it can help you to study the heart because of David. It says in the Word that he had a heart after the Lord. Now, that doesn't imply that David was a perfect man, but it meant in the grace of God that daily he was seeking the Lord. And, and when he got off track, he wanted to turn his heart back to the Lord. We can be rebellious against God, much like King Saul was. David wasn't in his heart rebellious. He was immature and ignorant, possibly, in certain aspects. And the Lord understands that and wants to bring us into greater maturity and extend mercy to, to us. But we need a Davidic heart and not one that's divided. And what that looks like is a heart that keeps wanting to go away from the Lord's right to govern and rule. And so he says, I've appointed him to be a representative, uh, David himself, or to bear witness to the Messiah. Now, you know, we're looking at product, service, cause, prototype, archetype, clash or not. David, uh, David was prototype of the greater archetype, which is the Lord. And so the text here is saying, hey, pay attention to him. I made him a prince and a commander of my people. And he goes on to say, Behold, Israel shall call nations that, that you know not, and nations that do not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And he goes on wanting us to realize here, call upon him while he is near, inquire, seek him, require of him, of the Lord. What is the point here? The Lord wants to glorify his people, and that is the function of this episode and podcast series as the Lord is bringing us into this class or not or rejoicing sons and daughters. Now, with that said, I wanted to look at the fact that I believe that heaven favors the crown. And there's an apology for monarchy that I wanted to go over with you. Uh, David Armstrong did an article on this back in February 20th of 2016 right in the time uh, when our nation was going through our presidential election. And he brought some things out, and I wanted to share some, some of that with you. He said that much of classical tradition insists on monarchy as the proper means for the moralization and humanization of the people. A man by the last name Rufus said, In the next place, it is essential for a king to exercise self-control over himself and demand self-control of his subjects to the end that will sober rule and seemly submission there shall be no wantonness on the part of either for the ruin of the ruler and the citizen alike is wantonness but how would anyone achieve self-control if he did not make an effort to curb his desires or how could one who is undisciplined make others temperate one can mention no study except philosophy that develops self-control Certainly it teaches one to be above pleasure and greed, to admire thrift, and to avoid extravagance. It trains one to have a sense of shame and to control one's tongue, and it produces discipline, order, and courtesy, and in general, what is fitting in action and in bearing. In an ordinary man, when these qualities are present, they give him dignity and self-command. But if 
if they be present in a king, they make him preeminently godlike and worthy of reverence. And that came out of an article that, that Rufus had wrote that kings also sh- should study philosophy in Fragment 8. Now, I'm not implying that self-control comes from studying philosophy. I just want to say that because I believe self-control is a gift of the, the Spirit. Now, he goes on to say in here, the king in his own moral example inspires and empowers the people to follow him in righteousness. This is the best answer for social corruption in the classical tradition. Put a king in power who has spent his life studying philosophy and how to be manly and virtuous, and you will provide the necessary rudder for the nation as a whole. For the classical tradition of kingship, kings are images of the divine who exercise the rule of God over their subjects and to whom are due divine honors because they mimic divine government of the cosmos. They are capable of bringing the same order to the people beneath their scepters. The philosophical tradition seems on the whole to afford more legitimacy to this sort of governance than to democracy as it existed, say, in Athens. Hence Plato's wealth of material on the philosopher king and the republic. On the whole, democracy was backwards in the ancient world. It succumbed again and again to partisan division and exploitation by wealthy and powerful uh, tyrants in Athens, its distant cousin. The Roman Republic similarly eventually fell, first to manipulation by the principal and then into dissolution by Imperium, and the much more open and frank kingship of emperors like Domitian. Monarchy in the Jewish tradition also begins with a conviction of divine kingship mediated by a human representative. God is the ultimate king over the people of Israel and the cosmos. The Davidic dynasty is especially chosen by God to rule Israel forever. That's in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, and is the promised inheritance of the nations and the ends of the earth and the imperial dominance over other kings and lands. Isaiah's visions maintains that Israel's messianic future will be symbolized and centralized around the rule of a Davidic descendant whose rule will be eternal and through whom peace is created among the nations and to whom all the Gentile kings and nations both pay homage and look to in hope. The Christian tradition itself, which an extension of the Jewish tradition, everywhere seeks to explain Christ and his relationship to the Davidic royal house as the proper heir to the throne of Israel. The sheer amount of material evidencing this fact in the New Testament and apostolic fathers is exhausting in its size and depth, but some important passages are worth noting. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that seeks to establish Jesus' Davidic legitimacy and populates his gospel with references to Jesus' royalty and Davidic inheritance. The Annunciation in Luke iconically represented on the royal doors of every orthodox iconstasis consists in an angelic promise that Jesus will reign forever as Davidic king. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke 1, 32-33. And again in the Song of Zechariah, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Luke 1, 68 through 75. The good tidings of Jesus' birth depend integrally on his birth in David's city. In all four Gospels, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem is interpreted by the people as the advent of the Davidic kingdom. When asked to rebuke them, Jesus declines. Jesus' suffering death is interpreted through the lens of Davidic royal psalms. Christ is and his crucifixion establishes him as the king of the Jews. In response to a question from the disciples about whether or not he will restore the Israelite monarchy, the risen Christ does not reject the inquiry as illegitimate or inappropriate, but he rejects only the disciples' presumption to know the Kairos and Kronos, which the Father has established by his own power. Instead, the disciples will enact an apostolic ministry to the ends of the earth, since, as Davidic king, Jesus is heir to that domain, and his new lordship must be announced there. The restoration of the Davidic monarchy is alluded to again later in Acts, where St. Peter promises Kairos of refreshment and Kronos of restoration to be connected to the return of Christ, who must remain in the heavens at least until Israel has received him, or what is called the restoration of all things. That is in Acts 3.21. Jesus' Davidic royal status is an integral part of the gospel, as it is in the Apocalypse and the Apostolic Fathers, where Jesus' descent from David is often especially connected to the Eucharistic celebration as a foretaste of the coming, all-encompassing Davidic kingdom. St. Paul especially draws on the rhetoric and language of ancient kingship discourse to exalt Christ, and the logic of kingship proliferates his letters everywhere. While ultimately Christians should maintain the apocalyptic sense that they are exiles and strangers among the kingdoms of this present age, since they are a peculiar people unto God and co-heirs with Israel and the divine election and inheritance, Christians are also confident that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11:15. That is, Christ as son of David has indeed inherited reign and rule over all the nations and the ends of the earth, and he sits now at the right hand of God until his enemies are subdued. Within God's kingdom, exercised and ruled through his Davidic Messiah, the Christian tradition has usually asserted the possibility of Christian vassal kings, that is, sub-monarchs, who may rule in a godly manner on behalf of the exalted Christ, kings who owe their allegiance and homage to the King of Kings, the Son of David and of God. The institution of Christian monarchy has been by no means perfect, but it has served an important function for most of the classical Christian tradition since roughly the 4th century. In each case, the monarchy was conceived in different terms and produced a variety of monarchs upon whom history affords the luxury of modern judgment estimations. Of interest are the ways in which, in each instance of Christian monarchy, the power and legitimacy of the earthly monarch is always subordinated to the divine monarchy exercised through Christ. A powerful example of this in Byzantium 
was the refusal to address the emperor as living law, since this title was afforded solely to Christ, having fulfilled the law of God in himself and become the true living law. There are clear boundaries. A monarchy may submit itself to Christ and seek to act in accord with Christ's lordship, but there is no confusion between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of other monarchies. To summarize, the biblical tradition and history of Judaism and Christianity are inherently monarchical in their theopolitical outlook and hold together in tension a theology of exile. Both Jews and Christians are ultimately looking forward to the redemption of the people of God and the final consummation of the world and God's coming kingdom with a theology of divine legitimacy of human monarchy. Both Jews and Christians also recognizing that any and all earthly monarchs are ultimately subordinate to God and the Davidic monarchy, whom Christians believe to be Jesus. Kingship discourse about God and Christ are not metaphor. They are literal descriptions of the position and title to which the Father and the Son lay claim. In the prayer life of the church, we might include also the Spirit, O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. So hang on to your seats because in this next section that we're going to go into, I'm going to tell a profound story about what happened in our ministry and how the Lord came in and created these circumstances of taking us through a whole tree stump reality with him for the raising up of Davidic monarchy. Hello, my name is Henry. We want to take this time to give you a break and consider the content and weigh what you've just heard. We also want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and for those of you who are supporting this ministry both prayerfully and financially. If you have not, take the time to listen to the Collider Vision and Mission episode. We invite you to email us at info at org for questions and suggestions. And if you are led to, give at paypal.me forward slash mzhop. Now, let us return to the episode in session. It, it was our first Sunday in what I call the seventh building, the House of Prayer context. And I was asking the Lord that Sunday, as I often do, like, Lord, what do you want to say to your people? And um, just waiting before him in a worship set. And uh, we're into a whole new season here. And while I was waiting on the Lord, he just impressed on me to go to Isaiah 6 and get towards the end of it. Now, you have to understand Isaiah 6 is this uh, Uzziah's died. There's this encounter with the, the prophet Isaiah, this is when he's going to get his uh, call. He's going to say, hey, he's taken up. He's given a revelation of the throne room. And we're all familiar with this. He says, hey, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm dwelling among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He gets the tongs. The seraphim takes the tongs, puts a coal on his mouth, and purifies his iniquity and guilt. And then he's atoned for, forgiven. And then the word said, whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. Go tell this people that they're hard-hearted, they don't understand, and I have something to say to them. And then he says, uh, 
well, these people are hard-hearted. You know, I don't know if you can imagine receiving a ministry where if you go talk to someone, they're really not going to listen to you. There's a very difficult ministry Isaiah was receiving. And he says, he says, the Lord, how long? And the Lord says, keep prophesying to them until their cities lie in waste without inhabitant and houses without man and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord removes his people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then he goes on to say this in 613. And this was the subject matter that I was called to preach on that that Sunday, our first Sunday. And, and though a tenth of the people remain in the land, it will be for their destruction, eaten up and burned like a terebinth tree or like an oak whose stump and substance remain when they are felled and cast their leaves. And so the Lord is saying all this devastation is going to happen, Isaiah. I want you to stay faithful to it. There's even going to be a tenth of the people that are left. And even that tenth is going to be like this. What They're going to be like an oak whose stump and substance remain when they are felled and have cast their leaves. And so he says, but however, in, in that stump is a holy seed. And it's, it's the substance of Israel. And so, you know, what a ministry to have. Everything around you is falling apart. But the Father is saying to Isaiah, hey, look, you know, there's going to be this small remnant left inside of a stump. And they're going to be, they're the substance of what I'm looking for. And, you know, back to the beginning of this this episode, you know, in my thinking, uh, I really don't like taking trees down for no reason or, you know, you take a beautiful tree down and it, it, it falls to the ground and if you're not going to use it for a purpose, it, it just seems like um, a waste of something so beautiful. And it's hard to understand the ways of God because why would you uh, fall something that is perfectly, what appears to be perfectly beautiful, leave a nasty little stump sticking up out of the ground? And then say, hey, inside that stump is something that is my elect seed. For me personally, I've always had a problem with that. Uh, And I can never see the wisdom of God in taking something perfectly beautiful and turning it into something so hideous. Even so much so when it comes back to my memory even now, when I had come out of my four years in the Air Force, I opened up this uh, little company for a little while called... uh, Moffat stump grinding <laughs> because I couldn't stand them. I was like, if, if you're going to take a tree down, uh, I'm going to go buy, I bought me one of those Vermeer stump grinders and I was going around and selling my services to go and grind stumps up out of the ground so I wouldn't have to see these hideous things everywhere. So when I came across this text that morning, I just, you know, was sort of, you know, scratching my head saying, Lord, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't get your ways and and I don't understand what this is about. And so he started to speak to me. He's like, I want you to look at something with me, son, about the power of what happens with the stump. And I want to read an article that was written by Will Graham back on July 9th of 2014. He said, on a daily basis, I'm blessed with memories and stories of the many ways God chose to use my grandfather to reach people around the world over the course of many decades. Nearly everywhere I go, people stop to tell me about how entire families and generations were impacted by his ministry. And I'm sure that you know who I'm speaking of now, Billy Graham. 
He said it's very humbling. What many people may not know is that it almost didn't happen. Everything we know of the ministry of Billy Graham from the late 1940s on, the massive stadium events, the evangelistic movies, the radio programs, the counseling of presidents and kings hinged on a singular moment in history that took place at a California retreat center of Forest Home. Well, I visited Forest Home last year to get a fresh perspective on my grandfather's story, and I'm returning there next week to speak at their annual summer family camp. As such, now seemed like the right time to share the story of the evangelist named Billy Graham, a discouraged young man searching for answers and direction in his life, unsure of God's plan for him. At the midpoint of the 20th century, he had already been an evangelist with Youth for Christ and had preached across Europe in the aftermath of World War II. He had held his first Billy Graham crusades in places like Charlotte, North Carolina and Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was also the president of Northwestern College in St. Paul, Minnesota, the youngest college president in the country. Not everything had gone as planned, however. His crusade in Altona, Pennsylvania, had been, in his own words, a flop. It was spiritually difficult, and he felt things had gone poorly, and it left him questioning whether or not evangelism should be his focus. At the same time, a very good friend and contemporary of my grandfather's, a man named Charles Templeton, had begun challenging my granddaddy's way of thinking. Mr. Templeton, who had preached with Youth for Christ as well, had gone on to study at Princeton, where he began to believe that the Bible was flawed and that academia, not Jesus, was the answer to life's problems. He tried to convince my grandfather that, that his way of thinking was outdated and the Bible couldn't be trusted. My grandfather had more questions than answers. As a young man in his early 30s, all of these things were swirling in his mind when he traveled to California in 1949. Should he invest fully in the college, which he knew meant seeking further education for himself? At the time, Northwestern wasn't accredited, and for it to become so, he, as president, would need to get an advanced degree which would require taking several years off from preaching. Should he leave the school and follow the calling of an evangelist, even though Altona had gone so poorly? Did he even believe the Bible from which he was preaching, or should he follow Templeton in questioning its validity? It was at this time that my discouraged grandfather reluctantly accepted the invitation of Henrietta Mears to visit and speak at a Christian retreat center called Forest Home. Mears had worked at First Baptist Church in Minneapolis for Pastor Riley, who was also my grandfather's predecessor at Northwestern, and she was a very well-known and godly woman. She would end up having a huge impact in Hollywood, California, and she served as the director of Christian education at First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood. She took grief for inviting him to speak because he was not part of the camp's denomination, but God had a plan in all of this. As I toured Forest Home last year, it moved me greatly to walk the paths that my grandfather walked as he struggled with the Lord and ultimately had the experience that would change the course of his ministry and the eternities of millions. You see, while he was at Forest Home, he spent a great deal of time studying the Bible, and he kept seeing the same phrase pop up, Thus saith the Lord, Thus saith the Lord. And while my grandfather had always accepted in his head the authority of the Scripture, this became the turning point as he realized in his heart that God's Word is divinely inspired, eternal, and powerful. One night at Forest Home, 
he walked into the woods and set his Bible on a stump. It was more of an altar than a pulpit. And he cried out, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions Chuck and others are raising. And then my grandfather fell to his knees and the Holy Spirit moved in him and he said, Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts and I believe this to be your inspired word. My granddaddy wrote in his autobiography that as he stood up, his eyes stung with tears, but he felt the power and presence of God in a way he had it in months. A major bridge had been crossed, he said. The resulting change did not go unnoticed. The next day, my granddaddy spoke at Forest Home, and 400 people made a commitment to Christ. Henrietta Mears remarked that he preached with authority that she hadn't seen before from him. That was August 1949, and mere weeks later, Billy Graham would go to hold the historic 1949 Los Angeles Crusade in the tent erected on the corner of Washington Hill Streets. That outreach was scheduled to last three weeks and ended up going for eight weeks as people packed the Canvas Cathedral and media outlets nationwide began talking about the upstart evangelist. Because of that moment, kneeling by a stump at Forest Home, I get to hear stories of lives changed through my grandfather's ministry. Because of that moment, my father and I are invited around the world to share the hope of Christ that my grandfather preached in Los Angeles and hundreds of other locations, both far and near. That moment not only changed Billy Graham's ministry, it impacted eternity. It wasn't too long after that that we were looking at how are we going to upfit this this seventh building, the seventh house that we were in in in, uh around downtown Hendersonville. And I had a friend of mine, Brian Byler. He said, Carol, I want to mention to you an architect that's a good friend of mine. And his name's Michael Bowen. He loves the Lord. And I'd like you to just maybe look into him coming over there and looking at your building and see if we could get a drawing done. Well, I scheduled that next uh, week. I think it was on a Sunday afternoon for Michael and I to meet. And you know, Michael uh, jumps out of his uh, big red truck he calls Clifford and uh, gets out of the truck and he's just a real congenial guy and he has a, a small architectural company that he's building and he gets out and he says uh, to me, he's like, you know, I know Kirk Bennett and I, and I was like, how in the world do you know Kirk Bennett and what are you doing here in Hendersonville? Because Kirk and I had went back to uh, those earlier uh, meetings that I had when in the seminal moments of building Melchizedek House Prayer and Mike and Michelle had uh, his wife had been uh, going to Zadok House of Prayer uh, back in the uh, I believe the 09 era and time frame and there in Charlotte Michael had really got a passion for the House of Prayer movement and so anyways Michael and I just really hit it off and just a a dear brother he just ended up blessing our ministry and, and came in with uh, the plans and drew up all the plans on the building and the complete upfit and uh, that we had planned on building a prayer room there for night and day prayer. And, and you know, with this background, if there's a seed inside the stump, you know, and the Lord's raising up something, he's, he's going to cause a, a root to rise out of, out of the stump. And that really went through our whole life cycle there. And we're 
running prayer meetings with uh, Henry and Wendy Todd. They were doing the 9 to 11 prayer meetings, AM, and uh, I and some other of my friends, uh, Michael was there and Michelle, uh, at the 9 to 11 p.m. meetings and just seeking the Lord and asking Him, you know, how do you want to uh, move uh, with us? And what ends up happening that just really, like, shook me up on, it was in January the 28th, uh, 2018, the Lord shows us to close the doors on the uh, that seventh building. And that evening when I was, you know, in turmoil and I was asking the Lord, you know, what is, what, what is happening here? The Lord says, welcome to the eighth day. I have material on this, and you, you can go and listen to the Palace of the Eighth Wonder. Um, I would challenge you to listen to that. Also listen to Shell Shock because I go through some of this, and also Dark Knight. I lay out some of these components, and it'll help to get an overarching view. Later on, we're, we're invited to go in with John Harris the next Sunday, allows us to come into his ministry over at his gates, and the the thread continues to uh, show itself over and over again concerning the blending of this high priest and king. What was fascinating to me is uh, Michael, he, he ends up going through, Michael Bowen ends up going through this whole journey with the Lord and ends up naming his uh, business Rise Root. And I, I thought that it was so wild because the weekend him and I meet and he says, hey, Carol, I'm I've decided to, I've been praying and asking the world what to name my architectural firm, and I'm going to name it Rise Root. That very same weekend that he says that, we uh, were running meetings over with uh, his gates, and uh, we had like two or three people that, that morning separately from one another say, the Lord's impressed upon my heart, Isaiah 11. And, uh, you know, over and over, like Isaiah 11, 1 and Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and John John Harris comes in and he says, "Hey Carol, I had a dream last night, and in the dream, uh, had this root coming up, uh, this plant. It was coming up out of my belly, and I went to jerk the plant out of my belly. And the Lord spoke to John and said, "Do not do that. Do not pull that plant up out of the out of your belly." And and he he came that next day and shared that with me, and I just was it was really profound because all these different situations happen that kept confirming Isaiah 11. And I want to read that for you because it's the function of, of what happened there in our first meeting in the seventh building and then what will happen with Isaiah 11 and then, you know, Michael Bowen's rise root. And Isaiah 11, one said, And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse. A branch out of his roots shall grow and bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Now, this section here is about the seven spirits of God, and they, they're going to rest on the Lord. And then it says, And it shall be in that day that the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. In verse 10, And him shall the nations inquire and seek knowledge, and his dwelling shall be glorious, or a glorify, a glorious dwelling. And that day the Lord will again lift up his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people, which is left from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath in the upper Syria and from the countries boarding on the Mediterranean Sea. What was really cool was I am seeing all this happen and I, you know, I'm trying to understand it and run it through an interpretive grid that you're saying something uh, special here. And I was invited over to 
speak at a Western North Carolina uh, Women's Aglow meeting, and there it was in Old Fort, and there's probably around, I guess, 70 intercessory women there. And um, I remember getting in there, and I told my wife, I was like, I, I don't want to speak. I don't want to do this. Uh, because I think myself, the pastor there, and one of his guys were there. I think there were three men there and 70 women. And I, I felt the uh, pressure of that. And I told my wife, I said, uh, you know, I was like, I think I could take a hill of Iwo Jima easier than I could uh, speak to all these ladies. And my wife says, what do you know about taking a hill of Iwo Jima? And I said, oh, man, honey. Oh. Uh, she was right. I didn't really know what it would be like to go charge a hill at Iwo Jima, but uh, I just was feeling that pressure and of um, feeling like there's three Y chromosomes in the room and there's hundreds of X chromosomes in here. And I, you know, it's it's one thing to be in the presence of a lady that can read your mail, but it's another thing to be in the presence of ladies who are devout intercessors and love Jesus that can look at everything inside of you and read you up and down. And I was like, I don't want to speak. And I thought, and I thought, man, if they don't want to do this, I'm not even putting myself forward. And so we go into worship and the spirit of the Lord comes down on me and he says, see how your ways oppose me. And uh, I was sitting there with, you know, tears in my eyes because I realized that my flesh was in opposition to the Lord. And it was like male and female, you know, and going through all of that. And then when I got into the spirit, I said, you know, I submit to your will. Well, the lady that was running the whole conference is like, uh, said right towards the end, uh, we're going to ask uh, Carol to speak to us after we have lunch. And I'm thinking, great, you know, I'm going to speak to a bunch of people after they have lunch, they're all going to fall asleep. And, uh, you know, this is my, my speaking engagement. And so anyways, we go down there. I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable, but pretty much completely uncomfortable. Uh, we eat and then they, you know, they introduce and I go up to speak and the strangest thing happens. I just, it was like God was speaking through my mouth to them to show them how special they are to him. But while he was talking to them, he was talking to me. Like I was having a full conversation with the Father while my whole person was animated in the presence of the Lord. And um, I believe the Lord really moved there in that meeting that day. But what was really profound for me was when I came out of that meeting, uh, Kara and I go to get in the vehicle, and she says, Look, Carol, look at that sign. And uh, I look over there, and she said, it's a sign from God. What was really interesting or wild was I look at this sign, and on the sign it says, Moffat Hill Road. And it going one direction, and the other direction it said Moffat Hill Church Road. And the Lord like quickly takes me to Psalms chapter 2, and he's like, do I not set my king on my holy hill Zion? And I'm like, yes. And he said, and says, I declared a decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And I, I feel the spirit of the world come all over me, and he says, I have give you a sign to show that I am blending the office of priest and king. And uh, so Moffat Hill Church Road and Moffat Hill Road, uh, Moffat Hill Road being king, Moffat Hill Church Road being priest. And I was just sort of just awestruck because of just coming out of this glow meeting and believing in the work of global intercession. You can listen to that podcast episode called Warhorse Aglow. 
where I'm ministering to the glow that will lead to this meeting that I have. And God's got a seed in the stump, and he's going to bring forth a remnant out of that stump, uh, Billy Graham's stump prayer. And I'm just taking all this and trying to put it together and say, you know, Lord, help me to understand the application. Well, one thing that was was very interesting about that sign is on that sign, it says State Road. Now, I don't know if this is like this in other states, but in North Carolina, we have what are called State Road numbers. And on that sign is State Road 1111 and State Road 1110. And so on that sign is Isaiah 1110 and Isaiah 1111. And in 1110, I just read it to you, and there will be a day that the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and seek knowledge, and his dwelling will be glorious. That's Isaiah 11.10, and then 11.11, in that day he will lift his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people. And, you know, I'm like thinking, and I believe the Lord really speaks this to me, you know, remember the book that was written about Billy Graham? I'm like, yes, it's, it's called Pe- Preacher and President. And he's like, I'm going to take the preacher facet and the present, and I'm blending them together as one. This is the blending of the order of Melchizedek is high priest and king put together. And I'm going to cause a movement to come on the earth from the root of Jesse. I'm going to bring forth a, a time to deliver my people by making a signal or a sign. And I'm going to cause a great recovery to come a second time. And he's like, remember, the Billy Graham's move was the first time that I brought forth the stump ministry. But down in that stump that he prayed in was the seed of Davidic monarchy, because I'm going to deliver my people by raising my hand and recover them a second time. And he speaks to me and he says, this is the ministry that I have given to you. This is your assignment. And it would seem bodacious and, you know, to receive something like that or to believe that that had possibly happened. But he's like, was not your great, great grandfather named Jesse? And I'm like, yes, he's the one that dad was cutting down the trees with and making stumps out of them. And he's like, and I've placed a seed inside the stump to bring forth this work of monarchy, a Davidic monarchy, before I return. Well, uh, it had been some time since then, and I had went to the gym and was sitting in the, the uh, steam room area in the sauna area at the Y over in uh, Biltmore Park, which is in Asheville, South Asheville. And a friend of mine, uh, his name's Cecil Jenkins, he... Uh, he starts talking to me about how that Billy Graham years ago had mentioned in a Nazarene, now Cecil is a Nazarene pastor and so was my dad, and had mentioned that one day there would be a, a Nazarene, and Billy Graham had said this, there would be a Nazarene that would come forth and would make a significant move on the uh, end time church. And, and I, you know, I was listening to Cecil say that and I was, you know, just thinking about it because I've been uh, born and raised Nazarene and have been in the Nazarene church since I was a uh, week old and 
my dad had been a Nazarene pastor and I didn't give it much thought and that evening I, I came home and I was uh, sitting on my bed and my daughter and I was sitting there and I thought you know I'm going to study this Isaiah 11 passage again and I opened up this article uh, from a gentleman by the name of Dr. Noel Rabinowitz that was written January 13th uh, 2018 and I was thinking about you know this branch of David and this root that a uh, branch that came out of the root of the ground of the stump and I was thinking about my great great grandfather Jesse and my dad and the ministry of the Nazarene and I thought you know I'll just look this up so I started to read this article and I wanted to share this with you it says in Matthew 2:23 we learned that Jesus's family settled in a small town of Nazareth in order that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. This prophecy, however, appears nowhere in the Hebrew Bible. And he says, is Matthew guilty of inventing a Messianic text? Absolutely not. He is simply employing a Jewish hermeneutical technique called Midrash. The key to interpreting this statement lies in recognizing a wordplay between Nazareth or uh, Nazarite, and Nazarene, uh, Nazareos. The wordplay is based on Isaiah 11.1, 1, and the Hebrew word, Nazir, meaning branch or shoot. The word occurs only here, but its messianic significance is well attested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 4Q161, the Peshar commentary on Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, we encounter a reference to the Davidic branch whom God will raise up in the last days to deliver the faithful and rule over the nations. Interpreted, this concerns the branch of David who will arise at the end of days. But what does Nazareth or Nazarene have to do with Netzer, the branch? Although the same seems so familiar to us, Nazareth should actually be spelled Nazareth. The English spelling is a transliteration of the Greek word Nazarite, which is itself a transliteration of the Hebrew word Nazareth. The Greek alphabet does not have a letter that would correspond to the Hebrew letter uh, Zeta and uses the word Zeta instead. The small detail has resulted in centuries of confusion about the town's name as well as Matthew's prophecy. After the exile, descendants from the house of David established the town and named it Nazareth to establish that God had preserved the royal line of Messiah, the branch. Matthew picks up on this fact and confirms that Jesus is the Netzer of Isaiah 11.1. 1. He is the messianic branch of David. Now, when I was reading this, I'm reading about this Nazarene and Natser that will come forth uh, out of the stump, particularly about Isaiah 11.1, 1, and that he will be called a Nazarene. And right when I'm doing this, Lydia, um, my, my second daughter, uh, she feels impressed to go grab a book. Now, she doesn't know what I'm reading uh, at all, and, and I'm sitting here saying, Lord, are you saying to me again in some way about Cecil today and what he was saying that you're going to bring forth this end time move and because of the nature of this kind of work I'm always questioning have I heard right from you and I'm the kind of person that likes objective proof because I can't it's hard for me to believe something of this nature and, and it seems very profound 
unless the war gives me some kind of objective proof on it. And so I'm sitting there and reading this, and Lydia uh, walks into the room, and she says, uh, Dad, I went in there to our bookshelf, and I was just praying, and I asked the Lord what book I should bring to you. Now, this is very random because Lydia doesn't do things like this ever. I think this is the first time she's ever done anything like this, but I suppose it was put into her heart to do it. And she brings me this book called Nazarene Roots. And now, again, she has no idea what I'm sitting here reading. And I just asked the word for a confirming sign that what I had heard earlier that day by Cecil was, in fact, the Lord was speaking to me that he was going to cause this to raise a second time and to pick up where Billy Graham had left off at the stump that he was going to pick up and cause a movement to come forward that would bring forth a Davidic monarchy uh, for the final inbreaking of the Lord. I mean, this is a big deal. And I've, it's not a small thing. And my little, my daughter, Lydia Ryan, she brings me the book and it says Nazarene Roots of all books. And I'm just sitting there like, man, if I had a question about this ministry, there it is again, uh, being answered. I, I'm going to bring forth uh, this this ministry for the end time. You know, I I think about this maybe like you do, and I literally say, how can this be? I don't understand, Lord. I mean, uh, uh, our family's just regular people. There's nothing special about us. Um, truly, there's not. Come hang out with us. Um, we're just like you are. And uh, and I, I think it's so, you know, maybe even way more hillbilly than you are. <laughs> but I, I think it, I mean, I think it's just so interesting to me that God, the way he elects and the way he thinks about us, you know, I, I feel like that it gives us so much, all of us so much hope um, that he has. He doesn't choose us based off of so many things that we put so much emphasis on. And um, I mean, I'm a little bit uh, overwhelmed by all this myself. And I have a duty to tell the story because the Lord has marked my heart and told me to do it. Otherwise, I would probably want to keep it silent. And this has been a very difficult journey for me personally uh, to even speak of these things because because they're, they seem to be so profound and overreaching and overarching. And I mean, if my family was identified with anything, it probably would identify with something that is stump-like, something that has been cut down, something that doesn't look to be like something that's very special. And uh, I can identify well with that, of my own humanity and uh, the sense of our humanity as people. I think it says about Isaiah that he was a, was it Isaiah, that he was a man of like passion? Um, Maybe that was Elijah. But, you know, when the Lord is choosing his prophetic voices like Amos and these uh, different people, he doesn't elect us as his people based off of, uh, well, we got the best voice, or we got the best look, or we got the best walk and the best talk. And, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't elect based off those principles. And I hope that what you can hear out of this is and see 
in our own humanity, when the word's saying, I'm going to raise up a Davidic monarchy, that is not, it is not based off of the things that man places so much emphasis on, that God looks after a heart. Um, I hope that you hear that through this. This is what God you know, chose about David. This is even the Lord, it says, he was not comely in Isaiah 53 that we would look upon him and desire to follow him. He was a, it looked like a very regular man just like the rest of us do. But the Lord had chosen that which appeared to be something that people would not place their attention on. And he says, I'm going to make you glorious. Uh, we're coming to this great transformation of the age where God is glorify us, his people, and he's making us into something and people that are so beautiful and profound. And there's something wonderful happening in your life. I, I hope that you, and whatever you're going through, I don't know if you face uh, things like I have. I face so much social anxiety. Uh, I've had plenty of people tell me you should not be a pastor, and I couldn't agree with them more. Face so much self-hatred personally. I've loathed my own self. Uh, I've wanted to go and run and hide from other people, and I don't. I don't know if you. And I've been very proud of uh, my own abilities and my own uh, things that I, I could do well. And the fact of the matter is, is that thank God for thank God for His grace. And I hope that this rings true for, for you today, that that you could see like in Billy Graham's life here, he's coming up off of a, in Charlotte, off as a dairy farmer's son, that God can elect and bring up uh, people from out of nothing. And that this, this remnant that he's drawn upon now is, is a seed that's hid inside of a stump, but there is a branch now, he is the greater branch that has come forth out of what appeared to be nothing that man would despise. A glorious king has come forth who rules and reigns right now, seated on a throne, and that we ourselves are being made uh, ready uh, for his uh, eternal reign. Well, let's just uh, let's close. Lord, I, it's so profound. You take the weak and the broken things to confound the wise. You you take the thing that doesn't appear to be much. You take our our guilt and our shame and you transform us, Lord, to believe you, to not base off anything based off what we see externally, uh, but to, to know we are in divine relationship with you. I just pray for all your servants, Lord, that are listening right now, your sons and daughters, your friends, Lord, that are listening to you, that they would experience your grace right now to pour into them to believe who you say that they are or that there's a time coming and that our hearts will be aligned with you in in loyalty and that we would be completely fixed on your mission and your plan for our life that jesus we long to see you and we want to see your kingdom lifted up all for your glory lord in your name we pray amen
And our eyes have been on 